Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the House That Hinky Built podcast. As always, I am your host, Jackson Frank. Uh, and per usual, I'm hosting this on Spotify Greenroom. I hope everyone is having a wonderful day. It is, it is beautiful here in Portland on this Saturday uh, afternoon, just turned past noon. Uh, today, the plan is to bring on Evan Zoucha of Premium Hoops. Uh, Evan, I know you're listening. I hope I pronounced your last name correctly there. Um, to to talk about four more prospects for the Sixers. That is Kessler Edwards, Nishan Bones Highland, David Johnson, and Aaron Henry. Uh, so we'll discuss those four guys, how they might fit on the Sixers, their general skill sets. Same thing I've been doing the last week or so. Uh, but I do want to start off with a caveat that Kyle Newbeck of uh, the Philly Voice uh, reported yesterday uh, on Friday that uh, the Sixers have entertained trade offers to move that 28th overall pick uh, for, you know, an immediate, you know, vet rotation players. So uh, there is a chance, especially given Daryl Morey's history, that uh, they don't pick at 28 in the first round. But uh, until a trade happens, I will continue to bring on esteemed NBA uh, analysts or esteemed draft analysts to uh, talk about potential Sixers guys. And Evan is here. Uh, and so I'm excited to uh, talk some prospects with him today. Hey, Evan, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Jackson. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you got my last name right, which is always nice to hear. Uh, I, I basically went through my entire, um, I guess, uh, pre-college school career getting um, misnamed by PE teachers. So you crushed it. Great job. Um, awesome. And yeah, I mean, you, you hit on it, but there's a lot of kind of uncertainty around what the Sixers are going to do here, you know, uh, depending on what they do with Ben Simmons before next season, if anything, um, depending on whether or not they want to keep the pick or, or trade it for more established talent. Um, or or they're, if they're going to make their picks. Um, there's a lot of different ways this can go, and I'm excited to get it. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because you, you're never going, you know, especially when you're drafting 28th and 50th overall, which the Sixers have currently, you're always going to want to go for best player available with some with some sort of fit, you know, at least in mind, because the, the talent gap among those sort of players is so minuscule. But, uh, you know, Ben Simmons is such an important part of their identity that if you trade him, whoever you get back or wh- whichever player is multiple, you get back is going to sh- reshape your identity to some degree. He's such a, you know, he, he is a unique player. I, I hate to use unique as like a, you know, a cop out, but he is, he is one of the few actually unique players, I think, in the NBA in terms of how he, you know, impacts what you do on both ends. And so that clearly affects to a degree kind of how you approach this draft. If you do view the draft as a one way to, you know, upgrade talent by actually selecting players. So um, before we're going to talk about today for anyone listening, uh, if you missed out initially, are Bones Highland, Nashawn Highland, uh, Aaron Henry, David Johnson, and Kessler Edwards. Uh, so Evan, just kind of give a, a basic rundown of you know each of these guys, their strengths, their weaknesses, and uh, why you know the, the fit on the Sixers does intrigue you at either of their their picks right now. Yeah, sure. So um, the the interesting thing about kind of preparing for this and, and picking the guys we wanted to talk about is that to me, outside of the lotto, there is a, a huge kind of range of outcomes in which guys could fall, and so. When I was picking guys for each of these two picks, um, it, it's very likely that, you know, some of the guys I might have picked for the earlier pick could be available at the later one or, or vice versa. So um, <laughs> mm-hmm. kind of getting into it, Kessler Edwards really appeals to me. And and, and kind of what I tried to do is, so I think fits the, fit this team well, you know, no matter what they do with Ben Simmons. And so kind of the, the, mm-hmm. the goals for me in terms of addressing team needs with these picks were um, to find guys who can play off ball. Um, but with some on-ball equity, especially mm-hmm. at the guard spots, um, and then also guys who can hit, you know, you know catch-and-shoot jumpers, especially because that reliable shooting is going to be critical for um, the Sixers as they, especially, you know, get to things like that. Um, to get right into each of the guys at, at, at even just a high level, 
Um, Kessler Edwards sticks out to me as just an elite shooter at the uh, three or four spot, really. And I think he can defend three or fours as well. Um, he's a solid defender. And so um, when, you, when you think about kind of role players who would fit well around the rest of the Sixers core, I, I think he slots right in. Um, Bones Highland is probably one of the most exciting prospects in this draft. And I would say almost definitely the most exciting prospect outside of maybe the top five, um, just in terms of watching him play. He, he's just electric to watch, um, you know, with the pull-up jumpers that he can hit um, and, you know, he can take him from three, four college lines. So um, <laughs> that, that kind of gravity is, is really, really uh, effective, especially at the NBA level where the spacing gets a little bit uh, more open. Um, and then Dave is just a super reliable, I think, off-ball, off-ball guard. Um, I think he can play either the one or the two. Um, although I think ideally he's probably playing a little bit more off-ball due to some of those on-ball concerns. A little bit with the handle, a little bit with um, kind of the athleticism and the burst, um, beating guys off dribble. But um, I think he's a reliable shooter and a, a good decision maker who will find open, open guys, um, whether he's got the open shot or not. Uh, and then Aaron Henry is just like a, a really um, – big winged uh he's incredibly strong he's had some reps with uh some on ball opportunity because michigan state required that of him um and he wasn't always the best in that situation um but it's something that i think will will be helpful for him as he kind of moves forward with his nba career and gotten some exposure to that um but really that that one-on-one defense is super compelling because every team especially when they get to the playoffs needs a big wing stopper and um i think that's whether or not the sixers do something Still there, Evan? You might have cut out briefly. Um, still there? Apologies for anyone listening to the podcast or on the room, but uh, you just briefly cut out at the end, end there, Evan, as you were talking about the importance of, of big wing defenders you know, in the playoffs, regardless of what the Sixers do at Ben Simmons. So uh, maybe hop off the mute and see if we can still hear you uh, loud and clear. Okay, perfect. I think, uh, think we're good then. Okay, yeah, I can still hear you. Are you good? Yep, we're good. Cool. Um, yeah, and so I think that's, I mean, it's interesting because I, I did a lot, of, I did a ton of draft work for 2020, a good amount for 2019, uh, and, and these are four guys, and, and not, not a ton for 2021, like I've, I know the, the, the top of the guys, I've watched a lot of them, I'm actually doing you know, a big piece on Jalen Green currently, and but uh, for 20, a lot of these guys are fairly, you know, anyone I'm talking about for a Sixers fit, a lot of them are fairly, you know, new to me, but these four are all guys who have been on the draft radar, you know, dating back to last year. Uh, and whatnot. So I have kind of a, at least a, a general idea of each of them. But um, yeah, they all do really intrigue me. I, I love the idea of Kessler Edwards. He's a guy I've, I've watched for a long time, you know, as someone who you know covered Gonzaga and whatnot, and you know, Pepperdine, where Kessler went, uh, being the WCC. I've, he's a guy that I've had a pretty significant look at for a while. Uh, I've talked you know, on previous podcasts or, or rooms here about the Sixers need for just more kind of size off the bench. I think, you know, they had so much kind of perimeter you know, perimeter-based options off the bench, but it was guys like George Hill, Matisse Thibel, Furkan Korkma, Shake Milton. Um, anyone who did have size was maybe either George Hill or, uh, you know, Matisse Thibel or Furkan Korkma, and they're not necessarily the most bulky dude. And so I think Kessler just in that broad sense would add more size to the bench, which could help. Um, but let's get into kind of the nitty-gritty of Kessler as a prospect and how he might, you know, you know, fit with the Sixers both on, on offense and defense there. Um you mentioned kind of him being a really good shooter. Um, you know, he shot about, I think he shot almost 40% across three years of Pepperdino, just under 400 attempts. Uh, if I'm correct here, let me pull up the numbers briefly. Um, 
but is, is he a guy like what do you make of his his general shooting profile like how is he you know potentially working off of movement how is he as a relocator um is he a good entry pass guy because that's part of shooting too if you're going to be the strong side you know release valve for a Joel Embiid offense um you need to be a pretty good entry passer that's something that Seth Curry and uh, and especially Danny Green were good at this past year that helped Joel um you know how how is he with his release can he get off you know tough tough releases high release point um like in and is he a guy that is getting this sort of acclaim as a, as a really high-level shooter? Maybe I'm just not really entrenched in the drafts of this year, but I feel like he doesn't quite get that label as much. But what do you make of him as a, as a shooter in that sense, and what sort of ancillary skills outside of shooting does he have if he has run off the arc, you know, especially given that he is you know, 6'8", you know, and a fairly fluid uh, player for that size? Yeah, well, I, I think it's a, a really interesting question to ask about kind of his offensive versatility because it gets into a lot of, um, you know, what what you project with his shot. And I think um, if you look at people's boards, where they place Kessler is a pretty good indicator of how they feel about assessing shooting form itself. So Kessler has a little bit of an odd shooting form, at least in mm-hmm. the traditional sense. Um, and, and I think that some draft analysts have a tendency to fade him because it doesn't look like what you would expect. You know, it's not that, that uh, balance, elbow, eye contact, follow through kind of, um, pretty textbook jumper that you'd see like a, you know, um, a, a classical Steve Kerr or something like that shooting. Um, but it's gone in, you know, for multiple years now. Um, and I think he can get it off in a variety of different contexts. Um, I think I still have some questions about how much versatility that jumper can be deployed with off movement. Um, but it, it's not something that I think is, you know, super duper doubtful. I, I, it's definitely a skill that I, I think is bankable. Um, and, and he has shown kind of a proclivity for making decisions if he does have to attack a closeout. Now, it's not always the best. Like, I think if you run him off the line, that is probably the best way to do it, just because otherwise you're giving up a pretty high-value shot, even if it's contested. Uh, Kessler does a good job of hitting those. And so, um, yeah, I, I've seen him kind of all over the place. Um, I think that sometimes he gets, um, I guess, uh, faded just a little bit Um just because of the way the shooting looks, but like it's, it's consistent. It's reliable. It generally always looks the same, at least in, in the games that I've seen. Um, and, and so I, I think it's bankable, but um, I've seen a lot of people put like Sam Hauser or, um, or uh, Trey Murphy, the third over him. And, and to me, I think that that may be a little bit aggressive, especially uh, Hauser, but um, the defense as well, just really helpful. And so like, so many, so many draft analysts, um, especially, you know, a couple of years ago, I think we've somewhat grown out of it now, but uh, we're always looking for kind of these, these bankable three and D prospects um, in the draft. And especially, you know, even uh, outside the lotto, that, that starts to be something that you're really looking for. Um, and, and I think Kessler can provide that. And I think you can get him, you know, um, late first or, or early second without too much issue, um, unless somebody is really high on him that I'm not aware of. So, uh, for me, the 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 context in which he can get his shot off are, are I think, mostly a, um, and I I bank on that shot falling in, you know, going in more often than it doesn't. And and I kind of touched yeah, on, think, you know, his ability yeah. to defend both. Or, oh, sorry, go ahead, Jackson. Didn't mean to cut you off. No, 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 you're good. You're no, you're totally fine. I'll I'll follow up after you're done, kind of giving the entire spiel of of Kessler's, you know, on and off the ball on, on both ends. Yeah, sure. And so uh, a lot of times I think that you find these guys, these like relatively quote unquote bankable 3D prospects. And a lot of times I think they can only guard one position. Um, more often than not, I think, and, and this is anecdotal for sure, but 
Uh, I think I see these guys uh, fall in as fours more often than not, which is, is valuable for sure, because I think um, you know, it's a, a solid advantageous position in which to place a shooter who is going to reliably get his shots off because you can, it's tough to, to handle those mismatches, those size mismatches, especially. Um, and so the fact that he can guard three or four means you can kind of deploy him at three or four, um, depending on what else you're going to put around him, I think. Um, so that's, that's valuable in terms of just getting him and, and getting him opportunities to develop those ancillary skills that you talked about before. Yeah. And I think, you know, so much of what is defined as, you know, uh, traditional or effective shooting mechanics are tied to guards because for so much of history in basketball, it's been guards who are taking those shots, right? So now as we continue to see more big men with perimeter-based skills, uh, they don't shoot the same because their bodies are different and and they have just different kind of energy and muscle tra- and, and strength transfer. You know, uh, the, the kind of the, the poster boy for this sort of thing is Sharon Jackson Jr. who shoots a very atypical, has a very atypical release, but, you know, is one of the best you know, one of the best big men, sh- big men shooter in the NBA and it could be one of the best big men shooter ever by the time his career is over. Um, and so, and I think, you know, Kessler falls in that mold as a guy who's six, eight, you don't, you don't expect a lot of six, eight guys to shoot, you know, four threes per game in college and, you know, hit them at about a 40% rate, um, almost 400 attempts. And so uh, you're just, we're, you know, I think a lot of the, the most nuanced and insightful, you know, draft analysts are work have worked beyond the, the kind of the, the aesthetic bias, um, but I think in some ways we're still kind of working to adjust as the game you know, evolves and, and guys with size have more, you know, a, you know traditionally so skills traditionally associated with guards. And so that's just a little bit of a tangent there. But I, but I do think you're right that um, there is some aesthetic bias there, but it goes in. And um, yeah, Kessler's a guy that, again, I, I, I saw dating back to his freshman year at, at Pepperdine and I was always kind of intriguing. I didn't do a ton of draft work this year to know, you know, what exactly allowed him to make that leap to a potential first round guy. But I am glad that he, you know, made that leap because he, he just with the defense and the shooting and kind of the fluidity at that size, there's always a really nice baseline of, or kind of the silhouette of a, of a high level three and D guy or just a three and D guy in general. And so um, I think he does fit well there for the, for the Sixers um, because just, they need, again, they need more size off the bench, like regardless of what happens with Ben Simmons, um, unless they're getting back, like, two six eight wings plus a high level starter or something like that they're going to need more size to come off the bench there um for them for the reasons i mentioned but um what i'm curious about with with kessler um is you know at at pepperdine he played with a a really kind of a star and colby ross you know a a really a really good passer pick and roll player a small guard um what do you make of kind of his his of edwards complementary skills in terms of how they might you know, develop or project onto a guy like Joel Embiid, who is a much different sort of player in how he operates offensively than Colby Ross. Um, will there be any kind of buffer period there for you? What do you make of just the ways that Kessler complimented Colby? Are most of those something that could still translate to a guy like Joel Embiid or Tobias Harris, or will it be some sort of adjustment in the, in the gaps that he'll be expected to fill, um, you know, as a role player for the Sixers? Yeah. So, um, at the baseline, I think there's kind of an adjustment period for every rookie. And, and that's easy to say just because, I mean, we, we know this from experience. Most rookies are bad um, their first year. Um, and granted, Kessler is a, a three-year college guy. Uh, he's a little bit older and he's had a lot of experience in different situations. He played for a smaller school, which meant that a lot of his competition was keying in on him. 
Um, and he's not going to get that kind of attention at the NBA level, which I think will be helpful. Plus, there will be more space to operate. Um, the one thing that I do think is a huge benefit to him and I think will help his transition is that while I think the, the positions he's going to find himself getting the ball in are going to be slightly different, and the ways in which he receives the ball are going to be a little bit different given the way the, the Sixers offense operates. Um, the fact that he has, you know, uh, reliable scorers in both Joel Embiid and, and uh, Tobias Harris especially um, means that he, he's going to have uh, easier looks in general. Um, Joel Embiid draws so much gravity, you know, or so much defensive attention, especially that, um, you know, if they, they can kick down to Joel Embiid and, and he gets doubled. Um, he's going to be a, in a good position to to kick out to one of those shooters. It's kind of the classical, um, the team you build around LeBron type of thing, um, except Joel Embiid can be um, positioned a little bit more stationary because he can operate with such ferocity and such efficiency in the post. And so um, I do think there will be kind of uh, some, some time that it takes for him to ramp up to these different looks. Um, but I think that the what the Sixers would ask him to do uh, in lineups where he's playing with Joel Embiid, especially, uh, will will work to his strengths, and it'll actually make his life probably a little easier than it was in college. Um, it's just going to take some time to get used to that looking a little bit. Yeah, Kessler's interesting because you know he I mean, he didn't. Remember, I mean, Pepperdine was never a really good team. They had some incredibly fun games at the WCC tournament a couple of years, a couple of times, but um, was never a team that was even on the fringes of you know the NCAA you know the NCAA tournament. Uh, and so there, you know, there's a lot of times, you know, with, with prospects, and this isn't every prospect, of course, there are prospects who come from not great teams, but a lot of times with prospects, there's kind of a, a you have to bridge the, you have to understand how to bridge that, that downgrade in talent in terms of kind of the advantage you have over opponents. You know, you can, you know, if you want related to, you know, like we're going to just Gonzaga, you know, guys like Corey Kisper and Jalen Suggs are going to have to adjust in their new NBA homes to not having that sort of talent advantage. Kessler won't really have that. He'll be in a, you know, in a spot where he'll, he'll be on a better team most likely, or if he was on the Sixers, you know, he'd be on a better team relative to his, his competition than he was with Pepperdine. Um, clearly a different context, but the point being is I think that helps him to an extent. Um, you know, our, I had PD on last, last time in our friend PD, I know he talks about the idea, like he trusts guys who more are asked to scale down rather than scale up. And I think in some senses, Kessler, is that sort of player um, because if one, he won't really have to adjust to a talent downgrade. Um, but defensively, I'm curious, what, what is kind of his optimal role for you? Like in terms of just his, his kind of weighing on ver, on ball versus off ball reps, and then also kind of pick and roll coverage. Is he, can he, can he be a point of attack guy against certain ball handlers? Is he better, you know, being the low man? Is he better as the, you know, the, the guy on the wing hitting the stunt recovers there to what, what's his optimal role and then in pick and roll as well? Because I think, you know, pick and roll is often the basis of a lot of offenses, and so it's important to know how a guy fits in there. Um, you know, especially for the Sixers, a team that just f- finished, you know, finished a series against the Hawks, where it's so much pick and roll and whatnot. And Joel was great in that role, and they were on, I keep using the word "roll," but spelled differently here. Um, but just, I, just, I just think those are important things to to suss out. Uh, so, how would you, how would you, what would you make of Kessler in terms of on ball versus off ball reps, and then also where is he best positioned in, in ball screen actions? You think defensively? Yeah, so he's gotten chances to do a little bit of on-ball, a little bit of off-ball in terms of defending the pick-and-roll, and that versatility of deployment at the college level is something that I think he'll be able to leverage those experiences in the NBA, although I think if you want to put him in his optimal role, I see him more, and it's not necessarily going to be an ideal fit all the time because I think there are vertical athleticism concerns that might limit his ceiling in this position, but in terms of the, the positioning factor and just his overall strength, 
um, his size at, at his position, given the skill set that he has. My probably favorite deployment of him in, in terms of pick and roll coverages is as the low man. And I, a lot of that is because I think you get the most offensive advantages specifically from playing Kessler at the four, if you can, if you can afford to. Now, if you're playing a team that's going kind of bigger and, and we saw teams do this a little bit more often, I think in the playoffs than maybe they did last year, even, um, you know, I, I think what the Suns got a lot of benefit out of is just being able to deploy a bunch of different sized wings with different skill sets, but all of whom could hit corner threes. Um, and they could all do a little bit of everything in, in pick and roll defense, especially. And so um, I almost see Kessler filling a, a role kind of similar to what Jay Crowder filled for the Suns. And that's a super valuable role to fill, especially if you can get some semblance of that on a rookie contract. Um, but he can step up and do some point of attack stuff as well. Um, I think he, he has a tendency, uh, his closeout technique is not always the best if you do make him kind of like stunt and recover, um, to shooters in the corner or anything like that. But, um, it's not the worst either. And like, I think his, his athletic, uh, his athleticism, um, while not completely perfect all the time, um, isn't going to take those kinds of looks off the table. So I personally think I'd play him as the low man more often than not. But, um, if he, if he has to switch even just a little bit, it's not something that you're going to idealize, but, I think he can handle himself long enough to, to switch back or uh, to not give up something super, super. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I think, and Jay's an interesting comparison, obviously, because there's some, I mean, he's a little short, he's a little shorter than, than Kessler. I think Jay's about six, six. And, uh, and I think, you know, as the low man, I think that's interesting because I think Jay, you know, obviously the physical comparisons and, you know, just the idea of being able to, I mean, able to just, just spam spot up threes with a little bit of versatility has been super useful for Jay. Um, and, and, but, yeah, I mean, there's just so much, so much of what Jay does is his physicality and strength, especially on digs and stunts and stuff. Uh, it isn't, isn't great. At, at, I think kind of weeks at run protection, but I do like that comp from a, from a general standpoint. It's just a, a wing who can fill a, a role, uh, to get up volume threes and, you know, be a physical defender with size and have some fluidity, um, there. But I, I am curious, you know, what, you know, what are, what are some of the, the areas of improvement you think Kessler could make and then tie into that, like, what are his swing skills for high end versus low end outcomes uh, that maybe tie or related to those you know areas of improvement that he could either shore up and really hit that high end outcome, or maybe they continue to kind of you know just be what they are and he, he reaches a low end outcome. Uh, and then similarly, what do you identify as his low end versus high end outcome? That was a lot thrown at you, but I hope you kind of navigate all of that. I think it's all linked together in some capacity. Yeah, I do think it's all linked together. And the, the skill that I think is the biggest kind of elephant in the room in terms of him reaching his high-end outcome, I think it's the thing that he both most needs to develop and will allow him to hit that high-end outcome, um, is the, the pull-up jumper. And this is where the, the mechanics, I think, the, the uh, a little bit unique mechanics on his jump shot um, can sometimes fail him. Um, and so the, the, the kind of pickup in, when he comes to pull-up jump shot uh, is not ideal. It takes him a little bit longer to load up. And uh, I think it, it means that the windows that he has available to him are smaller. Um, now, I think the the defense and the, the jumper, especially on catch and shoot, are mostly bankable. I think he can do even probably a little bit of movement stuff as well. Um, like you said, he's pretty fluid. The athleticism is not really concerned, and he's pretty strong as well. So I think he can navigate screens on both ends at a pretty high level. But if he can hit that, that pull up more often uh, than he is now, um, and maybe that requires some mechanical changes. Um, one of the things that I think is nice as a short aside about Kessler is that he's both going in a range and presents a skill set that I don't think coaches are going to mismanage, which I appreciate. So 
Um, I think he's going to be slotted in an ideal role for him early on. And he can kind of Mark and I, Mark Schindler and I have talked about this on the premium hoops podcast. I think he's going to be in a, a good position to kind of buffer and, and do what he's good at while he figures out the stuff that he's a little weak grab. But if he can hit that pull up jump shot, I see him as like a potential starter at either the three or the four. Um, and, and you know, he might even get some offensive, uh, some offensive usage that maybe we don't see as super likely. Um, I, I don't necessarily know if I bank on him making the, the changes to the jumper required to hit the pull up at a, at a higher degree. And that's why he's more, you know, closer to the later end of the first or the early second than, uh, potentially like a, a lottery pick or something like that for me. But, um, if he can hit that pull up jumper, like he could be really useful on offense and, and might even be like, uh, a third or a fourth option on a pretty good team. Um, I wouldn't necessarily bet on it, but uh, it's something that I think might be available to, available to him if he can um, be drafted by a team that is willing to take it slow to deploy him in positions where he is he is uh, already good, um, and who has like a shooting coach who's dedicated to kind of making slight tweaks to the mechanics that allow him to get the the pre shot prep in place for that pull up jumper a little bit quicker. Um, and I guess I'll say yeah, it's a low sure. end outcome. Um, which I didn't touch on, but I probably should. Um, his low end outcome is, is pretty solid to me. Like, I think he's going to be useful as, um, you know, even like a, a seven through nine rotation guy who is playable in the playoffs. Um, so he's a, a super attractive pick for me in the late first. Honestly, I think I have him in my kind of earlier twenties. If I, if I had to guess, I don't have my board in front of me, but mm-hmm. I think that's where I was um, last I checked. And uh, of course that's, you know, <laughs> uh, before some of the uh, uh, returners or withdraw guys uh, have been removed, unfortunately, but. Um, yeah, so his his range of outcomes doesn't vary too widely for me, um, but the the high end outcome is super attractive, and the low end outcome is nothing to shake. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think it's it's important too to note with that pull up jumper there there are significant degrees to that. There's you know the the side step three if you get run off. There's the wonderful pull up if someone forces you inside the arc, and there's the high end outcome where you're running, you know, for a guy like him, you're running second side pick and rolls or side pick and rolls off of you know, cuts or moves and you're getting that mid range jumper or whatnot. So, uh, yeah, I, as everything you said, there is music to my ears as someone who's long been intrigued by Kessler, but, you know, wasn't able to see it through. Uh, I'm very glad to hear that he, he is someone that you, you really, uh, like as a prospect, as a role player there. Um, because again, he's someone I've been intrigued by, by dating back to his, his, uh, freshman year. Um, but before we shift gears onto another guy, I do want to just, Ask like, do you have any? Do you have a game or two that you think is worthwhile for if they if they were able to catch it that they, to get a great idea of who Kessler is overall, strength, weaknesses, everything that encapsulates um, before we shift to uh, another prospect here. Yeah, so I always kind of like to give uh, a couple games when I talk about you know what what games I think are, are great to watch for a prospect, um, and I do so because um, you know I think they're you want to watch basically like. A, it helps give you a range of outcomes. Like if you watch one of the, the slightly less impressive performances and then you watch something where he just absolutely balled out, you can kind of see the, the theory or the vision from both ends of that range of outcomes. And so I think good examples of uh, games where a game where maybe he struggled a little bit more. Um, and I think it's specifically because this team knew how to target him um, and had the personnel to do so. Uh, I think he struggled a little bit in the, the January 30th, 2021 matchup against Gonzaga, which like, uh, struggling against Gonzaga is uh, no great shame, but uh, he went one of four from three in that game. And I think that uh, they found ways to kind of deny him the ball or get him in uncomfortable positions where if he was going to shoot, he was going to be pretty closely contested um, or he was going to have to find a pretty tough pass. So um, I'd say that game kind of gives you a vision of how he can be deployed, even if the shot isn't necessarily falling all the time. Although 
Um, like we've kind of talked about, I, I think it's more or less pretty bankable, um, at least at the NBA level. But that kind of tough competition gives you an idea of, of what he might be up against in the NBA if teams do decide to kind of uh, load up to him or, or kind of counter hard counter to the threat, especially in bench lineups uh, earlier on. Um, and then a good example of a game, I think, where he did like a really fantastic job uh, in general. And he, he took a lot of shots here, but um, he was really, really good, I thought, against San Diego State in uh, December 2020. I think it was the sixth. Um, had 22 points on 8 of 18 shooting. Um, and he was uh, five, or, five of nine from three. So that's, you know, you can kind of see how important it is that the shot goes in, uh, you know, depending on kind of what positions he finds himself in. But the theory of his value is definitely dependent on that shot. And so when the shot doesn't go in, he's got to find other ways to contribute. So I think those two games give you a pretty good idea of, uh, you know, his ability to survive when the shot doesn't go in or, or how much easier things get for him when it does. Um, but honestly, like he's got three years of tape, so... Um, if you peruse kind of the college basketball reference game <laughs> logs, um, I'm sure you'll find something that's to your to your liking if you're looking. Uh, yeah, obviously, uh, you know, it can be a little tougher to find Pepperdine games, but uh, it helps that he, play, he plays in a conference with Gonzaga, which those games are probably a little more accessible. Um, but we probably should speed things up a little bit. At this rate, we'll take two hours to talk about four guys. But um, let's shift gears to, to Nashawn Bowens Highland. We'll, we'll call him Bowens Highland. That's kind of what everyone calls him on uh, on draft Twitter and, and whatnot. Um, so let's let's circle back, give a brief rundown of his game, and then touch you know go go into the the depths of his his shooting profile and and how good he can project to be there and what type of usage is best for him. So um, give the rundown on, on Bowens Highland and why he's such a you know you gave him some pretty. Uh, lofty praise, calling him one of the mo- arguably the most fun players in the top five, or maybe inarguably, I don't recall exactly. But give give us the pitch on, on Bones, the good, the bad, and everything in between, and why you seem to be a, a fairly big proponent of his game. Yeah, so I'm pretty high on Bones. Um, I'll try to keep it short, but it's it can be tough sometimes to not be effusive in, in our praise about Bones. He's he's just a great guy. He's super fun to watch. But the theory of him as a player at the NBA is that uh, he's just a dynamic shooter from basically anywhere on the floor. And I think he can get to the, that shot in uh, a variety of different ways. I, the pull-up especially is a really dangerous weapon, and that's going to be his calling card at the NBA level, which is nice for um, teams that tend to kind of get stuck in, in the mud sometimes in the half court. Um, he's, he's a smaller kind of guard, not, not too terribly small or prohibitively small for a point, but um, if, if you kind of have doubts about the creation, and sometimes I think I do, um, it'd be ideal if you could play him as a two, and uh, I think he's going to struggle to defend twos. Sometimes he struggles to defend ones, um, although it's it's not always the worst. Um, he's got a pretty crazy wingspan for his size. I don't remember the exact numbers, but um, it definitely allows him to play passing roles at a, a, a solid level, if not uh, spectacular sometimes. Um, but yeah, definitely the theory of Bones is, is the shot, um, even off movement, but especially as a pull-up guy. Um, and he's gotten better attacking the rim, too, um, and, and kind of bumped the free throw rate up in his his second year at VCU. So uh, Bones is just really, really fun. And, and for a team that has kind of relied heavily on Shake Milton and, and kind of get um, bogged down in half court from time to time, I think Bones would present a pretty good escape route um, for, for that offense. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I think, you know, it, it would, it would, uh, it would just help to have a little more, you know, creation there and whatnot for, for the six from, from Premier. I had something, something a little more insightful to say there to escape, escape my brain, unfortunately. But uh, I do want to ask, you mentioned that you have some doubts about his creation. Um, why is that? What is it about his game that you know has you a little more worried, even if you remain a pretty big uh, fan of, of him overall as a prospect? 
So for me, for bones, um, I think the, the wiring is probably the, the biggest, um, I guess not thing in his way, but, um, kind of detractor from that ability to create from others. He's definitely a score first guy. Um, and you know, when you, you shoot the pull up like that, you can get it off from basically anywhere and, in, and so quick as well. It's hard not to be a, a score first guy. Um, he definitely, I think, improved as the usage ticked up in his second year. A lot more was asked of him, and he did find abilities, er, did find opportunities to, to leverage that shooting gravity, um, which does give him, you know, a, a wider margin for error, uh, or more margin for error, rather, I guess, as a passer. The windows are going to be larger because teams have to really step up on him, and he has the burst to beat you downhill as well. So when you have to worry about him scoring at all three levels, although the mid-range has been uh, a little bit less impressive, I think, um, then I would have expected a, a lot of times guys who can pull up from, from so deep start with that kind of mid range self creation pull up scoring. Um, but he's a little bit less impressive as a mid range score to me than he is, you know, either at the rim or three, but um, he, he does have that kind of three level scoring, at least in shades. Um, and that will make the, the passes easier for him at the next level. So it's nothing I'm super duper worried about, but I think it's going to take some time for him to recalibrate. Uh, what is a good look for him at the NBA level? What is a, a look that the coach wants him to take? Versus what is a, an opportunity for him to leverage that gravity he has as a shooter to, to set? Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I would just say for like anyone listening, like if you can if you can watch a couple of Bones Highland games, do it. He's absolutely delight. Uh, Evan is correct. I remember there was a play that went fairly viral on Twitter. I think at one point he hit like a ridiculous deep three against Dayton, and, and Jalen Crutcher like gave him a high five or something afterward. Uh, but just a really really fun player. Um, and I am curious though, because, um, you know, there with, you know, with bones in, in an ideal world, he is a complimentary player for the Sixers. Now you're talking about Doc Rivers, a Doc Rivers team that loves to play bench heavy lineup. So yeah, he'll probably have a pretty big creation load if he's someone they select and is able to, you know, hit on some of those outcomes that we've discussed on the, on the, uh, you know, optimistic side or the ideal side, um, do you do you think he's a guy like is he a, is he a high level enough shooter and decision maker and all of that to to warrant kind of running sets for not necessarily like as the as the primary guy but as someone who is a preferred option or a preferred outcome like if if a, if a shot ends if a set ends with him getting the ball and shooting that you feel pretty comfortable like is he is he good enough in, in that way and and if so what what makes him so useful. Uh, for that. And then we'll kind of, I'll talk a little more about some offensive usage, but um, just d- dive into the shooting specifically about like, how do you feel about him as a, you know, a, a preferred outcome on a given possession or action? I think you have to pretty much buy him as, as a relatively pre- preferable outcome uh, in terms of order of operations for the offense, for him to be worth that kind of late first round pick. And that is where I have him. So I definitely buy him as somebody who it's pretty valuable to, to draw up actions specifically to target him. And, it's something that VCU got a lot of value out of. And obviously, you know, things are, are different when you're at the college competition level, especially in a, a smaller conference. But um, yeah, I, I think that you can, you can get him moving in a variety of different ways. I think he navigates screens pretty well. He's, he's very fluid as a mover for sure. Um, and he takes pretty long strides. Um, so he can, he can find his way around, around screens, both offense, mostly offensively. I'd say he's not quite as good at it on defensive on, on the defensive end. Um, because I think he still kind of shies away from that physicality sometimes, but he's definitely fluid and, and the shot is just so dangerous in a, a variety of contexts. So especially earlier on, like if, if you're running him in kind of heavy bench units, like, like we all know kind of doc is prefer or uh, preferential towards. Um, yeah. I would definitely feel comfortable like drawing up actions specifically for him. And uh, 
giving him opportunities and develop, developing him by using those actions because uh, if the shot does fall, like I think it will, then um, teams will kind of recognize uh, and build up his reputation as a shooter and it will make the passing easier for him. And you really have to kind of put him in, in, deci- in uh, positions where he has to make decisions or else he's not going to get better enough as a decision maker for me for um, a later on first pick to be worth it. So I think he's capable of doing that. Um, but I would really want uh, a coach to kind of lean into doing that more often uh, just to kind of maximize his chances of reaching that. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously there are downsides to, to the doc, to docs, you know, proclivity for these Ben-Tavid lines. But at the same time, it does put young guys in, you know, important decision-making roles, um, which for their development is good. It hasn't been, wasn't great for the Sixers development this year in terms of trying to win a title. Um, but Shake Milton makes a lot of decisions. Tyrese Maxey made a ton of decisions. Even Matisse Stiebel, who isn't really a guy with many ball skills, has made, had to make decisions um, you know, at times. So I think in, in Philadelphia, he would have those opportunities that, you, that are key for him, as you mentioned. Uh, the, the, the thing I do want to touch on before we get into maybe the latter stages of, of the Bones discussion uh, is what do you make of his viability as a DHO partner, as a screener, um, you know, kind of in those inverted pick and rolls or those flex screens or cross screens that they'll run a lot for Joel to get, get good position? Um, you know, they'll run inverted pick and rolls for, for Joel or even for uh, Ben at times because currently we're going to continue to operate as, the, as though Ben is a, is a member of the Sixers, as he is. Um, so what, what do you make of his potential? Is that kind of a screener and a DHO partner? Because I think those are important staples of a complementary player in the Sixers offense. So I don't know if this is a popular take, but I actually think I was pretty impressed with him as a screener. So he, he's definitely tough and he's not um, unwilling to kind of get involved in that contact. I just think that he still has a ways to go in terms of adding the strength, but um, the tendency to, to be able to and be willing to be get involved, to be willing to get involved in those actions is something that I think is really valuable. And the, I think, you know, wiry guys with long arms, it can be tougher to add strength, but he did a pretty good job of it between his freshman and sophomore year. Um, so I've seen, I've seen him used in a variety of kind of uh, screener actions or, or DHO actions where you're running inverted stuff. And I've been a, a big proponent of that at the NBA level, um, just as uh, offering another look, especially as we get more bigs in the game who can make those decisions or who can pop out to three. Um, keeping the defense on their toes in that way is something that's really valuable. And so um, I've actually been pretty high on his ability to, to do that. And I think others may differ. Um, but a lot of that for me too is projecting that he'll continue to add strength, especially kind of in the core and the lower body. Um, and that, you know, he's gotten himself in these positions and then he'll be with, once he adds the strength, he'll be, you know, even better at, at actually making those an effective look for him. So, um, yeah, it's, it's something that I think, uh, I'm, I might be even a little bit higher on than others, but, um, it's something I think he can do. And I think it would pair pretty well with, uh, with Yeah, and I think you know, you know what would help him too is the fact that he, if he was the Sixers, he would have a, you'd have a guy like Isaiah Joe who was very sl- slighter for him as well. And Isaiah Joe is incredibly physical. It's one of the things I loved about him as a prospect. So um, he could at least get some tutelage there in terms of setting screens and being physical and whatnot. Um, you know, we could, I could do an entire podcast praising Isaiah Joe, but I shall not. Um, but let's let's shift to the defense a little bit. Um, I don't want to I don't want to spend a half hour again on this guy. Uh, otherwise, again, we'll be here for two hours. But um, optional defensive role, where is he best suited in pick and rolls? How can the Sixers kind of infrastructure help him? Um, because I think, you know, the, as much as much help as the Sixers need offensively, they do provide a very, very nice defensive infrastructure with, you know, with Joel Embiid, Matisse Steibel, Ben Simmons, uh, you know, Danny Green could be back as well. He's a very good defender in his role. 
Um, so what's the best way to maximize him defensively and, and what are his strengths on, on that side of the ball? So I think Bones is definitely somebody who provides the most value on the offensive end and figuring out what to do with him on defense is going to be uh, very important to, to your projection of him. Um, I don't particularly prefer him attack. And as a guy who I think is mostly going to guard ones or undersized twos, that could be a problem. Um, but I touched on earlier the, the wingspan and, and kind of the way he reads the game. I think he can actually be pretty effective off ball, um, not necessarily as a gambler, but just, uh, you know, in, in positions where he can kind of play the lanes a little bit more um, in, you know, a relatively conservative way. Like, you know, you're not going to um, throw him out there and, and just tell him to gamble. Um, but I think that's probably his best look in terms of defense. He can do the point of attack stuff here and there. Like he, he's pretty mobile. His lateral mobility, especially, I think is pretty good. Um, but it's, I think he's point gets overpowered at point of attack. And so until he can kind of add that strength um, or a little bit more of that strength, um, I would probably tend to not hide him, but keep him off ball a little bit more. Um, and that's going to kind of, I think, limit the, the options for him in terms of who he can play with early on. Um, but thankfully, the Sixers are, are actually well-equipped to kind of buffer him in that way, um, just because they have so many so so many versatile kind of uh, bigger guys, like a, a Matisse Thibel who can play the two, would, would cover, I think, for, Kess, or for Bones in a, in a really special way. Um, Maxi, I think Tyrese Maxi as well would be a pretty good partner next to Bones in smaller lineup. So um, I would try to get him off ball early on, but I think the Sixers can do that without. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, and I, I, yeah, I just so I think again because the Sixers are in a pretty good position defense with their defensive infrastructure, um, he could be pretty well insulated to, to amplify what he does well, and you know not not forced to do a ton of what makes him uncomfortable or not uncomfortable where he where he uh, struggles a little bit. Um, but let's let's kind of wrap things up a little bit. Swing skills, high end, low end outcome, and then a game or two to watch that best encapsulates all the good, the bad, and everything in between for Bones. So for me, I think the swing skill is going to be able is going to be finding a way to keep himself on the court defensively, so that you can get the most value out of his offense. Um, I think that one's pretty self explanatory, and we've hit on the ways in which he's probably I think slightly weaker on defense than I'd like him to be right now. So I won't go too deep, too deep into it, but finding a, a way to keep himself on the court defensively is going to be critical. Um, the, in terms of his high and low end outcomes, um, I, I think kind of the, the lower end outcome is like a microwave scorer off the bench. I think that that pull up gravity, especially is always going to be helpful, especially in today's NBA where you do want to kind of maximize the amount of spacing you have in half court. And especially for a team like the Sixers that I think really needs that, um, the high end outcome, if, if he can figure out the defense and stay on the court, and maybe he comes along as kind of a distributor for others as well. Like he could be a pretty, uh, pretty great, um, starting point guard, really. Um, and, and that's not something that I think is particularly easy to find in the kind of late first range. So um, that would be a really nice outcome, I think, for him. Um, in terms of kind of games to watch, um, I'd say for my lower end game, uh, the, the November matchup, November 2020 matchup against West Virginia, um, I believe, and I want to make sure this is the case. So give me just one second to check. Of <laughs> course. Yeah, okay, just wanted to make sure, but um, my, my memory wasn't playing tricks on me. But um, he matched up against Deuce McBride in that in that matchup. Um, just wanted to make sure Deuce played, so I didn't say something uh, out of pocket. But um, playing against Deuce is, is very tough, and West Virginia is a very uh, aggressive defensive scheme. So, um, you know, when you play such a defes- aggressive defensive scheme against Bones, it requires him to make decisions more quickly, I think, than he's used to. Um, and I think he struggled a little bit in that game. So it's a, a lower-end kind of game. Uh, that's a pretty good one. 
Um, and in terms of the higher end games, the, the conference tourney game against Dayton uh, was spectacular. Like the shot making was just uh, pretty special. I think he only went three of seven from three, but he was uh, 11 of 18 from the field, um, got to the line eight times. Um, and he rebounded really well, uh, which is kind of surprising for a smaller guard. I, I wouldn't like, bank on that at the NBA level, but he put up 30 um, against, I think a pretty darn good team. So uh, that's a pretty fun one to watch. If you want to see the, the theory of bones at his best. Cool. Um, yeah, I, I really like watching Bones. I think he's definitely someone people should take a look at. Um, you know, for, for the Sixers or just in general, if you're looking for, to kill some time uh, with the NBA, you know, not not in, uh, not happening right now and whatnot. But anyhow, let's let's shift to David Johnson. Um, you know, Louisville guard. You know, was someone that was kind of on the radar. It was a freshman and then decided to come in, but didn't didn't do a ton. Um, you know, had, had a role but wasn't really quite on the draft radar. Now is clearly on the draft radar after your second year. Um, give the rundown on, on him and why you, you kind of maybe like the fit um, for the Sixers by drafting him. So David Johnson is really interesting because I, because I think what we saw from him last year is uh, substantially, not maybe not incredibly, but pretty substantially different from what we saw uh, this year from him. Um, and, and kind of seeing him deployed in, in two different contexts in that way was pretty interesting. So uh, this year he played a lot next to Carly Jones um, and uh, he kind of acted in that kind of uh, big, big two guard glue guy type archetype. And I, I think he did a really good job of, of that. And I think it highlighted um, a lot of his NBA value. So I see him as kind of this, this modern connector, um, this glue guy who can play either the one or the two. Um, I think I'd only really play him at the one if you have like a big, a big wing size creator who you trust. Um, but I, I buy the shot, I buy the decision making, um, and he can play the two as well. Um, you know, next to a smaller guard, especially, um, and kind of cover for that guard on defense. So actually as a, a Bulls guy, I, I'm uh, hoping David Johnson falls to 38 because I think he'd be as good a fit for a rookie as you could find next to Zach Levine in that range, that kind of early second range, uh, or perhaps later second range. I've seen him kind of all over the second. Um, so that's kind of the theory of David Johnson. And uh, that glue guy archetype is really valuable in today's league. If you can find that, you know, with a late first round pick or, or uh, somewhere in the second, I think that's. Yeah. Um, one of the things I'm curious about with him is how do you feel about his decision making? Like, what is he, you know, kind of his advantage creation? Um, and, and how do you think he fits in kind of a an off ball role, a fairly significant off ball role? I guess, again, with the Sixers is always the caveat that. If he's a guard who makes in the rotation, he'll probably have some some notable on-ball usage because that's how, how things are operated uh, there. But what do you make of his decision-making and his ability to, to create advantages and kind of, you know, even more important, uh, kind of the, the ability to, to capitalize on those advantages in a timely manner because um, advantages, you know, are, are few and far between a lot of times in the NBA and, and they're quite fleeting as well. Yeah, so the reason I have him kind of lower as a primary, but uh, higher up if you you can fit him into a glue guy kind of role, is that um, I don't think he's super spectacular at creating advantages. I think he has some some athletic uh, limitations and some handle limitations um, that mean that it's tougher for him to create advantages off the dribble. Um, but if he's in a position where he can either um, continue or pick apart advantages created by other players on the team, um, he's going to find the open shooter more often than not, or he's going to shoot it himself. So... Um, the, the creation as a whole, I don't, I don't love him as a primary creator or, or even kind of as like a secondary creator who has to do stuff with ball in hand too much, like off the dribble. But, um, that's why I kind of have him, you know, in that, in that glue guy kind of role, because if you can contextualize him in that way and, and the Sixers can for sure, which is why I love this fit. Um, 
he's going to hit open shots. He's going to make good decisions. Uh, he's going to find the open man. He's very selfless. Um, and, and he can hold his own on defense, whether at the one or the two, um, maybe even against kind of smaller threes or teams that play three guard backcourts. Um, so he's, there are a lot of different ways that you can deploy him if you already have kind of your, uh, your top dogs in place. And the Sixers are, I think, lucky in that way um, that they, they have that. So um, that, for me, is kind of why I, I, I love the, uh, the idea of David Johnson. Yeah, I'm curious. Can you maybe expand on that a little bit? What is it about the Sixers roster that that you think you know, suits David Johnson well offensively? So I think specifically, if the Sixers keep Ben, um, then they've got that that uh, big wing creator who can attack off dribble. Um, and now it remains to be seen, kind of how teams treat Ben um, if he doesn't add the jump shot in the offseason or add some semblance of it, or at least start taking those shots. Um, but if you do have a big wing creator in place. Um, you can slot David Johnson into a pretty optimal role as an off shooter. Like you're not going to require very much of him in terms of self-creation because you have two primary options and a, a very reasonable third option in Tobias Harris as well. So, um, you know, most of the looks on offense are, are going to be, um, I think, Hey, Evan, I think you, you cut out. You said most of the looks on offense, and then it went silent. Um, so if we can maybe rewind to there and, and see again. I don't know what happened with connection. It's been pretty good throughout. Again, I apologize for listen. Hey, Evan, you, you cut out briefly. Um, right after you said like kind of the, the, the looks he gets. Um, apologize for that. Um, so if you can oh, maybe rewind works. to no. that. No, yeah. Rewind and can we go from there? Um, my internet's been a little hit or miss because I'm in my office a little bit further from the router. But uh, so the, the, I think the looks he gets for the, the Sixers, whether they do keep Ben or not, are going to be easier looks as a shooter. Um, and you're not going to require too much of him off the dribble um, because the Sixers do kind of have, you know, their primary three scoring options in place. Or, or if they trade Ben, at least two of those. Although I think uh, the Sixers are going to try to get an all-star back if they do trade Ben. So you would hope mm-hmm. that there's still another offensive option coming back. And if you're looking for glue guys in that that kind of range, David Johnson is probably my favorite bet who is actually likely to be available there. So um, that for me is why the offensive context fits him well, um, because they the, the Sixers probably aren't going to require too much of him off the dribble. Um, you know, I think you could give those reps to, to Tyrese Maxey or Shake Milton, and more or less that's okay, especially, you know, if this is what you're looking at for the, the Sixers' second um, second round pick. Um, so, so I think the, the – Yeah. Um, I'm curious, what do you make of his shooting development? Like how, how far along do you think it is? Is he, is he a pretty solid spot up threat in your eyes and someone who can, you know, force closeouts, you know, I think he had a pretty big jump as a shooter this past year. Um, let me pull up here quickly uh, and then we'll get into it. But like, how do you, how do you think he can, you know, work like command closeouts and, and then kind of leverage his ability to, you know, maintain advantages um, in that role uh, w- w- based off the kind of the shooting development and whatnot. Um, but just to clarify, yeah, he shot 22% from three on very small volume as a freshman, uh, just about 25 threes, uh, 23 exactly. And then last year he shot 38.6% on 32 of 83. So what do you make of his shooting development? Where do you think he is there? And is he the guy who can at least force defenses to respect him? And then he can leverage kind of that, that passing ability that he's always kind of had pop, you know, dating back to his freshman year. 
So I think if you like David Johnson in in this kind of range, you know, late first to to mid or late second, um, I think you have to buy the shot because without it, uh, the rest kind of falls apart since he's not really a burst guy who's going to create for himself off the dribble. It's one of the more interesting shooting developments I think I've seen. And a lot of times I have a tendency to attribute like, you know, the last season of, of good shooting. If there's only one, especially like, you know, when you talk about guys like Davion Mitchell, I think. Um, if they've only got one season of good shooting, especially in a longer college career, that's pretty suspect to me. Um, but I, I do feel pretty confident in David Johnson's shooting. Like, I, I don't think he got too many opportunities to take those shots last year. And more or less, I think that was, you know, for good reason. But he definitely, um, I think he definitely saw that as something that he needed to improve on um, if he was going to get real looks in the NBA this year. And credit to him, I think, you know, he probably put the work in in the offseason because uh, the coaching staff felt more comfortable with him taking these jumpers. Like you said, he went from, uh, you know, averaging less than one uh, three-point attempt a game to over four, uh, which is pretty darn good. Um, and, and the numbers were pretty solid in terms of the percentages as well. So I personally buy the shot. I don't necessarily know if I buy a, a wide range of kind of ways in which you you can uh, leverage that shot. Like I don't think he's going to necessarily be a movement guy, but if he can hit the catch and shoot, um, the the passing windows will be open for him and he can keep the ball moving. And as an ancillary guard that you're looking at kind of this late first to, to even late second range, uh, that for me is enough of a bet to, or uh, enough uh, proof of concept to take a bet on him, especially since he's still pretty young. Like he, he had that shooting development is, in his second year and um, the free throw percentages weren't great, but he also didn't take very many of them. Um, he was a 60% free throw shooter on the dot last year, uh, or rather in his freshman year, um, but only on 1.5 free throws a game. Uh, this year he was um, 2.1 free throws a game and he, he shot about 70%. So um, between the, you know, not unreasonable, but, uh, you know, somewhat promising uh, free throw numbers um, and the, the big uh, kind of jump he took as a three-point shooter and being allowed to take more of them, I personally buy the shot. But I would understand if others don't because it's, you know, it's, it's one season um, and it's, it's tough to kind of uh, take a bet on one season of shooting. Yeah. And I think, you know, as, as I feel like, like collectively draft Twitter has gotten more nuanced and smarter, we've, we've gone away from just looking at, you know, free throw shooting as an indicator uh, for or against, you know, shooting development from three. Um, but with, with, with Jim Johnson, I mean, such a huge leap in three point rate went from 16% to 38%, which I think does speak to the added confidence with some improvement. Cause I think a lot of times it's tough with prospects. They'll, you know, they'll, if they have a big one year leap, they'll talk about all these mechanical changes they made and whatnot. And, and so, and I get that because they want to get drafted. They want people, teams to buy into it. There's nothing wrong with that. But in terms of evaluation, I talked about this earlier in the week with about Herb Jones. It can be tough to know what, it, like, what exactly is real there. But with Johnson, it does feel a little more real given the, the huge, boost he had in terms of willingness and three-point rate there um but let's let's kind of wrap up with with david um yeah johnson i guess i don't know him personally i don't want to call him david um let's wrap up w- with him here like swing skills and then you know, term and high end low end outcomes uh and then maybe a game or two that you think is, is very reflective of, of who he is as a prospect so david johnson is kind of interesting because like when we touch up touch on you know whether or not you buy the shooting i think there are almost two swing skills for him and each swing skill informs um, his uh, his high and his low end outcome, respectively. So, uh, in terms of hitting his high end outcome, which I, I would see as you know potentially like a high high end role player type guy who you can maybe mix and match in as a low end starter um, if the context is right. Uh, the the swing skill for that high end outcome is probably I think the the pull up jumper. Um, if he can do that a little bit more often, like he could have some pretty real offensive value um, because I don't think he's ever really going to be too much of a downhill burst guy or a ball handler. 
Um, and, and I think the teams that are drafting him are, probably aren't going to ask that of him unless he goes, you know, significantly earlier than I'm expecting. But um, in terms of hitting his low end outcome for me, you would have to hope that the shooting is real. Like the catch and shoot at least is real. Um, and I do think it is like, uh, I wanted to make sure to touch on this. Um, uh, Marks in the comments posted that um, they seem to remember a, a shoulder injury last year that David Johnson suffered. And, and that is definitely, I think, something that needs to be factored into kind of that low three point shooting volume. Now, um, always, always a little bit suspect, I think, when um, there are injury related reasons for a guy maybe not taking shots that he would otherwise take. Um, because I think that can be somewhat a convenient excuse sometimes, but I do think it's pretty legit in this case. But to hit his low end outcome, like to be a valuable offensive or a valuable NBA player who can slot into these lineups as a, a role guy and a glue guy in the modern NBA, you really do have to buy that shot, at least on catch and shoot. And I do, which is why he's he's kind of in that kind of uh, late first, early second range for me, but others don't. And that's why his range of outcomes in terms of where he could be drafted is kind of all over the place for me. So that's why I targeted him as kind of the, the second round guy in this, this exercise. But um, he's, he's got a pretty decent range of outcomes for a guy who can be perceived as, as more or less safe. I think it's a, it's a really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's, he's got, I think got off to a really good start this year, if I recall back when I was still doing a lot of draft work, I remember really, really liking some of the stuff I started in the season. Obviously the scoring efficiency tailed off somewhat. Um, but uh, yeah, he's a guy that's at least intriguing. And I think, you know, more, the Sixers need more guys who can play off the ball and you know, capitalize on the advantages created by Joel or Tobias or even Ben, especially early offense with Ben. Uh, and just from the, the way you described him, seems like at least a guy who can, can do that, even if he's not quite the, he's not some high level shooter than the Danny Green or Seth Curry or, you know, ideally the George Hill, you know, we didn't quite see that from George Hill, but that's who he's been most of his career. Um, anyhow, let's, I do want to add, like, did you mention any any couple of games that you think would, would be good for to watch for him if people get their hands on it? You still there, Evan? We got a little bit of a little bit of quiet here. Uh, did you mention any games um, for David Johnson? I apologize for anyone listening in the green room or uh, as a podcast for this uh, some of these technical difficulties, but I think the the, the insights are well worth it. But have uh, any games um, for David Johnson that best you know reflect who he is as a prospect? Hey, can you hear me? It's showing me as muted, but the button says I am not muted. Uh, yeah, I can hear you now. You're totally good. Okay, perfect. So David Johnson played for Louisville and played in a pretty decent conference. So you can kind of pick and choose um, games you'd like to watch if you'd like to see a matchup against somebody specific. But if I was going to tell you kind of games that I think would be valuable to watch. Um, if you want to make, if you want to see what it looks like when he's kind of not hitting those jumpers, which is frankly a little bit tougher to find, uh, in, in this season, just because he did kind of perform so well there. Um, the, the matchup in Clemson against Clemson in late uh, January, 2021, um, he went over three from three point range. Um, and he put up four points total, uh, only four rebounds. And so you can kind of see how things fall apart for him if that three is not going in. Um, but I think there are some, you know, plenty of really solid performances from him this year. And, uh, I think, um, you know, you could, you could, you could watch the, uh, first of the two games against Duke in like right before that Clemson game and in late January. Um, I think that's a pretty good example. He wasn't insanely special as a scorer, but the shots went in and, um, he made good decisions for others. Um, or even if you really want to see the, the theory of David Johnson, um, and then this is, uh, you know, kind of relying on some shooting variants, but, he lit Georgia Tech up in early February, um, six of 11 from three. 
and uh, everything else just came so easily from him for him after that uh, because they just had to commit so heavily. You still there, Evan? You cut out briefly again with the audio. I apologize for anyone, anyone who's listening to this for some of the technical difficulties. We'll do our best to bridge this gap, but still there, Evan? Uh, yeah, I can't hear you, Evan, unfortunately. Apologize for everyone in the room and for anyone on the on the podcast into this. Just fast forward, I suppose, until you hear uh, more audio. Are you there, Evan? Yeah, Jack, I think I'm back. Um, my my Wi-Fi just dropped. Uh, where did you lose me? I can go back through what, uh, what basically, I Basically, you just said the end of the Georgia Tech thing. You said that he shot 6, 11, from 3, and everything else kind of came easy for him, and that's basically when uh, we can no longer hear you. Oh, okay. Well, that's just about all of it. Um, I would say, <laughs> like, kind of at the start when I was mentioning the two games, he played in a pretty good conference, and they have a, a wide range of kind of talent that they played against. So you kind of can't go wrong, depending on what you're looking for. But those are the two games that I've. Cool. Uh, let's shift to Aaron Henry. Then the last of these four. Um, I think this, this podcast is on, or this stream has been awesome. So thank you for that. Uh, apologies for anyone who has to endure our technical difficulties. Uh, that's just kind of the name of the game, I guess, for these. But anyhow, uh, Aaron Henry, brief little rundown, then we'll get to the more some of the, the micro, uh, the nuances of who he is as a prospect and how he might fit. Uh, with the Sixers and more generally in the NBA. Yeah, so the theory of Aaron Henry as a prospect is that he's a big wing who knows exactly where to be, and he's like kind of a defensive savant in, in that kind of uh, that kind of vein. So um, the theory of the value there is is that you can put him up against big wings, and that's not something that you generally find in the second round, I think. Um, now, there are mocks that show him go in the first. Um, I personally am not that much of an Aaron Henry truther, but... Um, if you really buy the shot um, or you, and you kind of buy the creation that comes with uh, an improved shot, then I could see him in the first round. I am not super duper high on the shot. Um, he's had a high time, I think, an opportunity to fix it at Michigan State. and Never really came along to the degree that I was hoping for. But um, in terms of big wing defenders, I mean, I, I think he's pretty special. And he went up against some, some really tough competition. You know, like uh, he was asked to do a lot for Michigan State. Um, his development kind of trajectory in that realm was interesting because – um, he was lucky to play for a good coach who who ramped his involvement up as kind of went through his college career. But um, in his most recent season, he was asked to do so much as a creator on offense and also to guard the the best the the opponent's best team on de- or best player on defense. So um, he had to do a ton, and for the most part, I think he acquitted himself pretty well. But uh, the shot definitely is the question. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, he's. He's one of the guys that I've, I've watched. I've seen him you know, back to his freshman year. I was really intrigued. I've always been kind of skeptical on the on the uh, jumper as well. I just didn't really like some of the mechanics and whatnot. Uh, his posture has always been kind of weird. Uh, he's never quite able to fully extend, I think. Um, but I will not be touting my wins. I get plenty of things wrong that I should be focusing more on. Uh, anyhow, um, how do you how do you assess a guy like him who you know has been intriguing to a degree dating back to his freshman year? Um, kind of stagnated somewhat as a sophomore. Um, and then really, I think, made some strides in the stuff I saw from him this year. So how do you kind of parse that, for, you know, because he's now actually a legit, you know, NBA prospect in terms of development? Is it, it, like, where do you stand between him actually getting better and improving on some, some you know, flaws in his game versus just 
you know, developing in college to the point where he's a little more comfortable in, in this, you know, at this level. Uh, So where do you stand on that sort of thing? And how do you think it relates to, to Aaron Henry and his NBA projection? So Aaron Henry is actually a guy that I thought probably should have come out last year. Um, I think there was still kind of some, some question marks about the shooting, but uh, and maybe this is just because I was a little bit lower on the shooting than I think some other people were. Um, you know, he shot about, I think it was 30% from three last year. Uh, oh, oh, I'm sorry. He shot uh, 34.4% from three last year on three attempts a game. Um, and I think Michigan State was just kind of putting it bluntly a, a better team last year than they were this year. Um, and so the theory of, of uh, Aaron Henry going back to school was that you know, you were really hoping that the jump shot came along further because I think the, the progress last year, especially in terms of bumping the volume up, was pretty admirable. Um, it, it didn't affect the efficiency too terribly much. Um, so you were really hoping that he'd come back to school this year and hit more jumpers, uh, especially since he, you know, had more usage. And maybe it's because he had more usage, but uh, the the jumper didn't actually get much better, at least statistically, in my opinion. Um, you know, maybe there were some mechanical changes that he's still getting used to. Um, so we should give him some credit there, but. Uh, the percentages dropped off. He shot 29.6% from three this year on 81 attempts, um, which was uh, what was up? 2.9 attempts per game. So the volume didn't go up, but the percentages went down, which is something you don't like to see in a guy whose swing skill, in my opinion, at least, is that three-point shot at least off catch and shoot. Um, so it was tough, but he did get asked to do a lot, and it's not like Michigan State had a whole lot of reliable uh, kind of jumper, uh, jump shot guys around him so he he really just kind of got played in congested court a lot and uh he didn't really get to play off ball either so um the jury remains out i think about the three-point shot but um this was a season that i don't think did him a whole lot of favors and um he's basically getting mocked in i think the same range as he was last year maybe just a little bit later since he's one year older so um i think sometimes that might be a, a good example of you know the dangers of going back to school, even if you think the the role that you're going to be going back to is a good fit for you, because um, even if shooting variance kind of messes you up, um, if the, the the shot is kind of your swing skill, that variance could could put some scouts off you. So, um, but what makes Aaron Henry special is all still there. Like uh, if the shot does fall, the passing vision is honestly pretty special for a, a wing his size, and he has shown some of those ball handler flashes, um, you know, throughout his college career. So if the shot does fall, like there's a lot to like, especially on the defensive end, but uh, you really have to buy that shot, I think, for the rest. Yeah, and I think that's it. what's interesting because my, my kind of my read on Aaron Henry as a player is like obviously the defense is very good, especially on the ball. Uh, a really good advantage pass in the sense that like if he forces a close there, makes a cut and draws the defense, he has really nice interior passes kind of, you know, uh, with laydowns, you know, thread the needle among defenders and whatnot, helping create, you know, rim rim volume for guys, rim finishes and whatnot, rim assists. Um, so, you know, in your in your sense or estimation, like how do you go about developing the jumper? Because it does feel like such a skeleton, kind of a skeleton key skill in the sense that it widens the amount of, you know, the amount of lineups he can play in. It, you know, he can play more minutes if he's a spot-up threat, and, because then you have the defense, and then the, if he forces closeouts to an extent, you can do everything with that passing. So developmentally, like what do you, what would you kind of be your, rough approach to trying to improve his jumper in terms of mechanics or approach or things like that. Yeah. So the, the mechanics are not super ideal to me. So I think the first thing, and I'm somebody who from the the theory of skill development, I'd like to kind of build up from a a solid baseline. And so for me, I think that means getting back in the gym and and potentially making some mechanical changes that allow him to get the ball off a little bit easier, um, especially off movement where he 
really struggles because I think the uh, the load up time takes quite a bit. And then there's like a hitch at the top, which maybe that's indicative of him kind of having changed mechanics and still getting used to new mechanics. But um, I don't still really love the, the mechanics that he's employing at this time. And so I'd get him in the gym. Um, I think I'd make some mechanical changes um, and, and see if I can at least make him a little bit more comfortable with, uh, you know, the, the release specifically and, and at least get rid of that kind of hitch at the top. Um, and maybe that's something that just takes some time. But um, thankfully, I think that, um, you know, this, this shift down, being asked to do so much less, especially on ball than he was at the college level. And uh, this is something you can say for every prospect. Um, and I think it's true for every prospect. The NBA spacing will help him. But I think that NBA spacing doesn't help everybody equally. And Aaron Henry is mm-hmm. somebody who will be really helped by it because, uh, you know, especially for guys whose jumper takes a little bit more time to get off, um, hopefully he has a little bit more space. Now I think that would require teams to guard him. And uh, maybe if they're really not bothered by his jumper, they're not guarding him and the, the whole thing kind of falls apart. But um, I think he, I would make some, some slight mechanical changes in the gym and then try to get him more comfortable. Um, even if it's just standing him up in the corner on, on bench lineups or perhaps even in the G league um, and giving him some time to feel out those mechanics in, in game space, because uh, that's going to be the key. Like if he can hit those corner jumpers at the bare minimum, off catch and shoot with like, you know, maybe a couple of games, two, three a game, like that is playable to me. And then the on-ball defense becomes really valuable. Um, and the off-ball defense is uh, pretty, pretty darn good too. So uh, it remains to be seen what a team kind of thinks they need to do with those mechanics. Um, and, you know, every shooting coach is going to kind of differ in terms of what changes they want to make, I think, because it's definitely not perfect right now. But uh, they can make some mechanical changes and um, ramp him up to some level of comfort in game-like situations once they've, once they've made those. Um, some fluidity in the jumper would really help him and getting that off a little bit more often would uh, give him the ability to hit catch and shoot, especially in the corner. And then the rest kind of starts to come together. Yeah. I I think, uh, I think Sixers fans are are well-versed in the idea of a very, very good shooter who, if he could just hit corner threes, um, he's stable here, of course. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that all makes sense. And, you know, I guess kind of before we wrap things up, because this has been a very good podcast and stream, uh, but whatnot, um, what swing, I mean, is the swing skill just the jumper for you? Like, is, is it pretty straightforward? Like, I feel like we kind of laid it out a little bit, like just, you know, simplifies what lineups you can play them in means you can play them more. You trust the jumper, you know, it amplifies the value of the passing. Is, is that pretty straightforward? Are there any other skills you think are important for him that could determine whether he hits a high end or a low end outcome? No, I mean, it might be oversimplifying it, but really the jumper is the main thing here. Like, I think that's his swing skill, and it's been his swing skill basically all three years of his college career. Um, and if he can show some some progress in that domain, I think it's going to be a real, it's going to look like a really nice bet even early on. If he's ready to do, you know, a good amount of stuff, I think, at the NBA level, but um, he's got to keep himself playable on offense, and the teams aren't guarding him, especially, you know, on the Sixers. <laughs> I think Sixers fans know what, know what that's like sometimes. Um, so, you know, I, I think the jumper has to go in. Um, and that's something that's going to be critical, I think, to to his. Yeah, the Sixers already have two two high level defenders with shaky at best jumpers, so uh, I think that, I think their fan base might be might be uh, set on those for the time being. But as we mentioned, you know, Ben Simmons might be on the way out, so maybe they have a little more room for what they can you know invite or allow with their team building. Um, can you give us a game or two? You know, I mean, again, we have three years of data data on. Uh, Aaron Henry, just like we do with Kessel Edwards, but a game or two across any season really that you think is, is a good summation of, of who he is as a prospect. 
Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll pick games from the recent season because I think I want to give him credit for the changes he made and, and for the role that he mm-hmm. played this year because he was asked to do like an absolute ton um, relative to, I think, what his skill set should suggest that he would have to do in terms of offensive creation for himself and for others. But uh, I think uh, the early December game against Duke, he kind of struggled. He was 0 for 3 from, from 3 and, uh, you know, the the... No, the shot not falling, 7 of 21 from the field, so, like, the shot not falling from anywhere, and especially not from 3, um, not even from the free-throw line, 0 for 2 from the free-throw line. Um, he still managed to produce in a couple different domains. You know, he had three steals, three blocks, and so you can kind of see that, you know, even on the defensive end, or especially on the defensive end, even if the shot's not falling, he's going to find a way to make something happen. But uh, on the high, higher end, um, I thought he did a really good job against Illinois in February, uh, the, the February 23rd game. Had 20 points. He only took one three and he missed it, but um, he was nine of 18 from from two point range, and he still kind of put up those defensive stats: two steals, two blocks, um, and he had five assists as well, which kind of shows the value of him as a passer. So, um, you know, maybe it's just that Illinois um, didn't didn't read the scouting report there, and I, I'd have to go back and kind of watch that game again and see how they played him. Um, but he he didn't take uh, even a single three. So uh, I I personally would have tried to to make him take more, um, but that that was a pretty good game from him, I think. Um, and kind of shows how well-rounded he can. Uh, yeah, you mentioned that Duke game. That is one of the games I do I do remember watching actually back when I was still doing a lot of draft stuff. And I do remember him struggling to put the ball in the basket. But I thought it was a great uh, example of kind of his off-ball instincts defensively. I mean, yeah, as you mentioned, six stocks um, or three steals, three blocks. But I thought he made some really really nice reads for those plays. It wasn't just wasn't just happenstance. So I would, you know, if, if you're recommending that all, out of all the games you've watched, then I can uh, I can uh, attest to that as well. Then. Um, but Evan, before we kind of wrap up, I would like you to, if you could kind of maybe like power rank these four guys in terms of if, if all four are available at 28, how, if for the Sixers, how would you go about if you're kind of in that, if you're sitting in the war room with, with Daryl Morey, what are you advising him to do in terms of if these four guys are available? Yeah. So I think, uh, if I had to rank these guys in terms of, uh, how, how good I think they are as picks for the Sixers and kind of who I'd take at 28. I, I do think um, at least three of these guys I think are draftable at 28. I probably wouldn't take Aaron Henry at 28. I'd try to get him in the second round if at all possible. Um, but I think I'd rank them Bones Highland first, uh, Kessler Edwards second, and I think those two are pretty close. Um, then I think there's a slight gap, and then you've got David Johnson coming in at third. Um, and then I think there's a slightly larger gap between David Johnson and Aaron Henry. And that's kind of how I think I'd rank these four guys, but uh, Bones and Kessler, especially, I think are are pretty great fits for kind of what the Sixers do. And, and yeah, for sure. And I think you know may, maybe there's some overlap with with Isaiah Joe in terms of what Bones Island can do. But I, I don't think you can ever have too many smart uh, movement shooters who can get up a ton of threes. The Sixers, you know, can use that and and, and whatnot. And by no means does it mean like Isaiah Joe isn't going to be the guy preventing you from drafting a player. Uh, even if I continue to like Isaiah Joe and think uh, he could do some interesting things next year. But uh, that's for discussion for another podcast. Uh, Evan, thank you so much for lending us your time today. Uh, give yourself a little plug. Where can they find your work? Where can they follow you? Uh, the floor is yours to uh, promote yourself. Awesome. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on again, Jackson. It's uh, been a lot of fun. Uh, the Sixers have a really, really cool team that I think uh, was a little bit disappointing last year, but um, they have a good baseline, I think, to build on, and, and I don't think the, the changes they need to make are too significant. So um, thanks again for having me. Um, in terms of where you can find me, you can find me on Twitter, at easy underscore hoops. Um, I'm, although I'm probably going to be pretty offline here, um, at least up until the draft, I've got some work coming, which uh, should be, should be a lot of fun. Um, you can find me uh, do a, a mostly weekly podcast. Although since the playoffs, uh, we've been going a little bit more regular uh, called sense and scalability. We're on basically every podcast network you, you would find your podcasts on. 
I mean, we mostly do NBA philosophy and, and roster construction philosophy type stuff. Um, but we also do some gamers here and there, especially in the playoffs. Um, and then you can find my written work at uh, either premiumhoops.org or at my own site, easyhoops.co. Um, and easyhoops.co is kind of where uh, the, the field piece that I wrote with uh, where I leveraged my neuroscience background to um, define kind of what, what feel is on a more granular level and uh, why I think it can be developed. Uh, that one's a, a pretty fun read, I think. Um, and then, yeah, uh, otherwise, that's uh, that's about about the size of it. Um, I might have something. I, I should have something, I think, coming uh, to another outlet here the day after the draft if I can get it done in time. So uh, stay tuned for that one. It'll be kind of a fun surprise. Awesome. Uh, everyone listening, I cannot recommend enough to check out all the work everyone does at Premium Hoops over there, listen to their podcast, definitely read that that piece that Evan talked about with kind of the, the idea of feel and whatnot. Um, really, really insightful. Um, but, yeah, uh, for everyone listening, uh, please, as always, if you have any feedback or criticism, uh, do not hesitate to let me know. Uh, and please uh, do uh, do review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. It means a ton to me. Uh, I'll be back on Tuesday with some more draft stuff. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe. I will talk to all of you again soon.